This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. Go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. Ton to do today, as always. I want to tell a story coming up about uh, Hernando Cortez. Also, I got a great story about Napoleon to explain what Donald Trump did with his tax returns with Rachel Maddow the other day. Um, Which, by the way, those tax returns, he absolutely leaked those himself. (laughs) There's no question about it. If you've been listening to this show for the last two years, then uh, you you knew right away that he leaked those himself as well. Fits perfectly into stuff he's done for decades. Um, So we'll talk all about that. And then we'll uh, talk about the cafe standards, the fuel mileage standards, which President Trump put the kibosh on the other day. Kind of. Uh, we'll talk all about those because most people don't understand how the cafe standards work. And I'm actually going to I'm going to talk about it from the perspective, not of a free market constitutional uh, libertarian, which I am, but from the perspective of a progressive environmentalist. And why from that perspective, cafe standards not only don't do what I think they do, but they do the opposite of what I think they do. So we'll chat about that uh, a little later as well. I want to start here, though. I think this is an appropriate way to start the uh, the show today. So we have two con- – well, we have a bunch of congressmen in San-, San Diego, but we have two Republican congressmen, Daryl Issa and Duncan Hunter. Daryl Issa, he was on the House uh, – not Ways and Means, House um, – oh, gosh, I'm sorry. It's escaped me right now. He, he did a lot of the Benghazi hearing stuff. And uh, Duncan Hunter was a Marine. So, But Daryl Issa – He's the kind of guy who's he's in Orange County and San, Northern San Diego, which is pretty conservative. But he was really close to losing this last election, which was shocking for everyone, including him. So anyway, he uh, the two of these guys each had a town hall meeting last Saturday, two separate town halls, separate locations, uh, same time. <laughs> right. So they did that, obviously, to make sure that the same group of protesters didn't go to each of the meetings. Right. A little divide and conquer, if you will. Now. There's kind of this talk that progressives are starting their own version of the Tea Party kind of thing. Ah, whatever. These congressmen, though, they need to do this. They need to have these meetings as part of the deal. But the people who went to these town halls, they're just very, very angry and not over the hysteria of the last election. Most of the people who attended these are just hystericals looking to 
lash out. For instance, this lady, Cliff1413. Uh, my, name, my name is Catherine Scheel. I'm a member of the State Bar of California. I'm a patriot. Uh, my First Amendment rights were violated in this room. I had a very small sign that said, investigate Russia now. There are many other people who have signs here. My, your bodyguard, security guard, came over and took my sign away from me forcibly. I asserted my First Amendment rights of free speech. I told him it was suppression of speech. It was also, um, you know, he was... Can you hold on for a second? Who's got the sign? They took it away from me. No, no, no. Hold on, hold on. Who... The only instruction was that signs that were large enough to obstruct, like the gentleman down there that still has his. My, li my sign was not large enough and to I obstruct. I apologize. The instructions you, we had, that gentleman's mine sign Mine was much smaller than that. And I, I sincerely apologize. As you can see, I, I gave no instructions. The fact uniformly, the ones that say that eight, the eight and a half by 11... Mine was, mine was small. It was forcibly taken from me, and it constituted a battery. It was your staff. They committed a criminal offense against me. Well, okay. Thank you very much. We'll go on to somebody who doesn't have a pending lawsuit. Next. All right. Number 809. Hold on. Okay. All right. All right. Stop there. Stop. Lady. <laughs> Lady. This is what I don't get. You spend your entire day to be at this town hall. You wait all day. You finally get your chance at the microphone in front of a congressman. And you spend the whole time talking about your precious sign. And you know she's hysterical because the only thing on her mind is Russia. That's what her sign was all about, too. It's all about Russia. I got a quote here. It's from a German guy who spent the eight years prior to World War II in Japan. And he stayed in Japan throughout the, uh, the entire war as well. And he got out and he wrote a book about uh, Zen. And this is what he wrote. He said, the man with center. This is what they call it in Japan. They call it a, a man who has center. The man with center has calm, unprejudiced judgment. He knows what is important and what is unimportant. The man with center faces life calmly, is tranquil, ready for anything. If suddenly fire breaks out and people begin to shout in wild confusion, he does the right thing immediately and quietly. He ascertains the direction of the wind, rescues what is most important, fetches water, and behaves unhesitatingly in the way the emergency demands. It's a man who has center. That woman did not. Now, we know that this is the right way to react to things. We know this is proper behavior because, and this is what I find so interesting, our pop culture values this, but not our actual culture. And I don't know a better way of wording that, but, but I hope this makes sense. Let me try this again. Like, our pop culture values men with center, but our actual culture doesn't. It's very weird. For instance, have you ever seen the, uh, the Jack Reacher movies? I don't think I've seen the second one. Um, but the, the first Jack Reacher is uh, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is Jack Reacher. Right? And no matter what happens to him, he's always super calm. 
And in the first movie, there's a scene where five guys start a fight in the street against one guy, Jack Reacher. And Reacher's like, all right, guys, this is your last chance to walk away. And the leader says, what are you talking about? It's five verse one. And Reacher goes, "Uh, it's, it's three verse one. How do you figure? Well, once I take out the leader, that's you. uh, I'll have to take out one or two enthusiastic wingmen. And then the last two guys, they always run. So come on, it's getting late. (laughs) And they fight and he beats the first guy, takes out the next two and the other two guys run. Exactly like you said. Super calm the whole time. And all the great action stars are like this. James Bond, Maximus in Gladiator. All the superheroes, Batman, Iron Man, everyone's chill. Um, everyone who has the force in the Star Wars movie, except for young Luke Skywalker, he's the exception, but that's because he's young. That's the point. He hasn't found his center yet. He hasn't found the force. Indiana Jones, you name it. Even in comedies, like the cool characters, Ferris Bueller, we love them because they always stay calm. They never panic. Every action movie, every Western, the main character is super cool and calm. They never panic. Have you ever seen a, a, a the main character in a movie, freak out and panic. The main character, you know, who's like cool, calm, collective. Have you ever seen it? them freak out ever? Has Clint Eastwood ever had a character where he freaks out and panics? No way. So we know we value this because art reflects it. We know that this is a value because otherwise Jack Reacher and all characters like him would be panic-stricken all the time and would run around with their hair on fire. But they never do. Why not? Because we value it deep down. We value that. We respect that. So that's like pop culture. But in our actual culture, we are encouraged to act like fools. We are goaded into acting like our hair is on fire all the time. That's what the media does. All the time. First of all, the media is full of people who lack center, right? Remember someone who who, who has center, or I should say, excuse me, flip it around. The per- someone who lacks center cannot distinguish between important and unimportant, essential and unessential. And they're easily startled. What is the media if not that? <laughs> Everyone in the media, they cannot distinguish between important and unimportant. And they are easily startled at everything, all the time, constantly, nonstop. They lack center. They lack control over themselves. And they expect you to do the same. I'll give you a silly example here and then I'll, uh, I want to talk about how politicians do this too. But one of the, the, the fake controversies of last week, I hope you missed it. I hope, I hope you don't follow things so closely that you hear this. But Huffington Post did a story about the pioneer woman who I love um, on the Food Network. Like when, I, when my wife and I are looking for a recipe, like a Friday night recipe, we always go to pioneer woman first. She's awesome. And they replayed it, uh, an episode she did from 2012. And the whole kind of shtick of the episode is her husband loves buffalo wings. And Pioneer Woman, the whole thing is like she lives on a farm and her husband's a cowboy, right? So her husband loves buffalo wings. So her whole family and her husband are waiting for her famous buffalo wings. And out of the oven, she pulls out Asian hot wings. And her husband and all the guys in the family are like, wait, what? What's this? We don't want these. Blah, blah, blah. And she's like, haha, just joking. And then she pulls out of the oven her buffalo hot wings. And there was this fake outrage that, that she's racist. Because <laughs> her husband doesn't like Asian hot wings. Therefore, Pioneer Woman hates Asian people. 
That's like, what are you talking? What? So I, 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 I hope this has all jumped the shark. Can it, can it please? Like, what is it going to take? This, this outrage culture, it's got to jump the shark soon. Please, I beg of you. So the people who freak out about that are those who don't have any control over themselves. So my argument is let's be more Zen master. Let's be more centered. Let's have more control over ourselves like a Jack Reacher or insert your favorite action movie star here. We can't have an entire country where everyone's panicking all the time. <laughs> you can't, can't function like that. And I blame the people who are intentionally trying to make us panicked. one 888 right, I want to come back and tie this into the politicians with the Bloomberg syndrome. We'll tell you all about that next. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline, a licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800 This is Mike Slater. I'm just going to be real here. There's no use uh, hiding it. If you hear uh, a baby crying in the background, that is not, not in your house or your car. That is indeed uh, my son. <laughs> not too far from where I'm sitting right now. So uh, <laughs> you may have heard him right there. Um, long story, just go with it. So, Victor Davis Hansen coined a term called the Bloomberg Syndrome. And the Bloomberg Syndrome is the inability for a politician to determine what is important versus what is not important, what is essential or not essential. So, Michael Bloomberg, of course, the former mayor of New York City, he went on this massive crusade against salt. Remember, no more salt shakers on tables and, and soda, right? Limiting the size of soda you can buy. So that like so that's unimportant, but during the 2010 blizzard, the city was completely incompetent in clearing the roads and people couldn't leave their apartments for days in certain areas because of his incompetence on what is important. Right? As a mayor of a city, clearing the roads from a snowstorm. So here's Victor Davis Hansen. The Bloomberg syndrome is a characteristic of contemporary government officials when they are unwilling or unable to address pre-modern problems in their jurisdictions, crime, crumbling infrastructure, inadequate transportation, etc., they compensate by posing as philosopher kings who cheaply lecture on existential challenges 
over which they have no control. So in Chicago, you got Rahm Emanuel talking about immigration and and sanctuary cities and uh, keeping Chick-fil-A out of Chicago because Chick-fil-A doesn't have Chicago values. Meanwhile, Chicago is the murder capital of the country, right? So we're not going to focus on that, but we're going to talk about Chick-fil-A or Jerry Brown, the governor of California, talking about global warming and going on these global warming crusades and literally traveling the world, uh, speaking out against global warming or whatever. But people are evacuating. 200,000 people are evacuating a town because the state's second largest dam might collapse. <laughs> right? So it's like, guys, the inability to determine what's important or unimportant, essential or unessential. Ed Driscoll wrote about uh, a movie called Manhattan, a Woody Allen movie called Manhattan. I've not seen it, I will admit. But I do know that it stars the highly overrated Meryl Streep. And uh, it's a movie about a, a TV comedy writer who's annoyed that he has to keep churning out garbage and he dreams of being the great, uh, the next great American novelist. That's how IMDb describes it. So I'm going with it. So at one point, Woody Allen, he, he talks into a tape recorder as he's outlining his new book. And he says, an idea for a short story about people in Manhattan who are constantly creating these real unnecessary neurotic problems for themselves because it keeps them from dealing with more unsolvable, terrifying problems about the universe. Isn't that a perfect example of what we've all been doing lately? Just in general, just people creating real, the real in the sense that like they have to actually deal with it, but it's that they, they create them. Right? So they're, they're real, but they're unnecessary and they're neurotic problems and you create them for yourself. Why would you do that? Oh, you do it to avoid dealing with more important things. That's why Victor Davis Hanson in this article for national review, he entitled it. Don't sweat the big stuff, <laughs> right? As opposed to don't sweat the small stuff. It's don't sweat the big stuff. So our governor in California, he can't properly deliver enough water to the people who live in his state. But he will fantasize about building a train that no one wants all day long. All right, that's someone who can't, who can't distinguish between what's important or unimportant. By the way, quick little, uh, because I just mentioned the train, I got a couple minutes here. Can I give a little high-speed rail update? You may not be following this. So high-speed rail, 2010, the voters of California passed this thing. Total disaster. I, I can't, I'm going to share one story here. This is one one hundredth of of everything I can share to you about this giant boondoggle. It's called the Brown Doggle, after Jerry Brown, and it's 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 hilarious. And you would laugh if you wouldn't cry for it. You laugh so you don't cry. It's it is unbelievable waste of money. So the first section of the high speed rail train is is from Merced to Shafter. These are two towns. I'm going to look it up. Merced, California. I don't think, how many people live in Merced? Uh, let's see. Un momento. A population of 81,000. That's even bigger than I thought. And then Shafter is 20 miles north of Bakersfield. So Shafter has a population, I'm not even kidding, I think of like 2,000. Okay, so, so that's the first section of the rail. And they're building it there because it's the cheapest section. And they really think that if they can get some rail laid then people will be like, ah, oh, well, I mean, we got to finish it, right? So they're starting it there in between two zero population centers, right? Who's going to ride the high-speed rail between Merced and Shafter? Anyway, just that one section is already 50% over budget. It was supposed to be $6.4 billion. Now it's $10 billion. 
and it was set to open this year, and now it's set to open 2024. So they're 50% over budget, seven years late. Not a single track of uh, a rail has been laid. Not a single track. And it's 50% over budget and, and seven years too late. And when they first pitched the high-speed rail, they said the whole thing from, uh, from LA to San Francisco was going to be $10 billion. And now just this one little section is $10 billion and they haven't even started yet. That's not even the story. The Trans Bay Transit Center. Downtown San Francisco it broke ground in 2010 and set to open this year. Huge, three blocks long. It's actually beautiful, um, but it's it's enormous. And this is where the high speed rail is supposed to go in, and then it, it has the buses there too. So it's a bus station and the train station. Now the thing is, opening day is going to be in a couple months, and there won't be any rail because there's no rail anywhere, and hopefully there never is, but there, there's none yet. Which means there is a massive 4.5 billion dollar bus station built to accommodate a hundred thousand visitors a day but the buses only account for about ten thousand people now this whole thing was built on the assumption that a hundred thousand people would be buying train tickets and food and shopping in the stores and all the rest so now city officials are freaking out and scrambling over how to pay to keep this building clean and to keep it from falling down because no one's actually going to be using it again meanwhile the state can't figure out how to give water to people. But we're building $4.5 billion bus stations. This is what happens when you can't distinguish between what is important and unimportant. It's the Bloomberg Syndrome. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Um, let's chat about this for a second. So on my local show, I had an interesting exchange. I did a segment about, we don't have time to go into the whole thing now. It's really not even that important, but we did a segment about Fukushima and the nuclear power plant in Japan. There was the earthquake and the tsunami and, and uh, all these articles being written about the nuclear, uh, the plume that's making its way to California. And it's like all this just outright unbelievable, like this fear-mongering, panic-stricken about about Fukushima. And I did a whole segment about how that's just just not true. Just don't don't believe that stuff. And I don't have time to do the whole thing, but the amount of, of uh, radiation in the water that has reached Oregon that scientists have tested that all these articles are being written about, the amount of uh, radiation there is, um, or I should say, flip around, sorry. There's, ra- there's actually a scientific thing called... Um, uh, hold on, hold on. The banana equivalent dose. There it is. So it's how much radiation uh, is in a banana. So long story short, there's fifty thousand times as much radiation in a medium-sized banana as there is in the water that from Japan that has reached Oregon. Fifty thousand times as much radiation in a banana, but nothing in the article talks about that. Right? They just talk about the nuclear plume that's coming so there's no perspective so i talked about that and then i had a couple of people call in and be like slater you what do you know you're a scientist or you're not a scientist you're just a nothing blah 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 stuff all right i'm not a scientist 
but I am in the media and persuasion business. And I can see when people are being dishonest and trying to hide something or sell something or get you to click on something or get you to become uh, uh, panic stricken about something. And that's what this was. So I'm not asking you to listen to me when it comes to radioactivity. I'm not asking you to trust me. That would be prideful, which is what one caller said I was. I'm not asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to not listen to fear mongering from the clickbait media that's scaring you without giving you any proper perspective. So that's the intro to what I want to talk about here. I want to talk about science. You know how the media is very disliked right now by pretty much everyone. They did that to themselves, right? They lost our trust because of their own actions. Science is also getting a very bad name, and many scientists have done this to themselves. Now, that's a broad brush of people because obviously there's amazing scientists doing amazing things that have nothing to do with what I'm talking about here. But there is a group of scientists that are doing uh, their field a very big disservice. Now, there's three players involved here that I want to talk about. There's bad science, bad scientists, and a lazy media. Those are the three I want to run through quick. First, bad science. So, Science has to be, and you can go back to, I don't even know what grade this would be, like sixth grade probably, sixth grade science. Science has to be observable, testable, repeatable, and falsifiable. So you have to be able to look at it, observable, testable, you have to be able to test something, repeatable, you have to be able to test it over and over and over and over and over again, and then falsifiable, you have to be able to prove it, prove a thesis false. So we can break down all these, but let's just look at repeatability. A few years ago, a researcher did an analysis of research and took the 100 most famous psychology studies, and they tried to reproduce the results. They tried to replicate the results, which again is is essential. If you can't, it's not science. You must be able to reproduce the results. So they reproduced a hundred of these studies and only a third of them were reproduced the same. That means two thirds of those studies are total garbage, total garbage, not science. Now that me saying, well, that's just like psych studies. Those are, it's not real. A biotech firm then took 53 of the top studies on cancer research and found that only six were able to be replicated. Again, that's not science. There are major biases of all kinds going on. And and we could take time to go through all of them. There's literally hundreds. But the obvious one is that scientists really, really want their hypothesis, uh, hypothesis to be true. So when they have the data, they don't look at where their results could be false. They don't look at where they could be wrong. They only look at the things that prove what they want to prove to be true. And they run with that. And they'll change some things or not include some things or only look at certain things and not look at other things in order to make their results the way they want it. It's just a bias that all humans have because scientists are human. So they they fall into this trap of performing bad science. That's number one. Then you have bad scientists. Now, they're not bad people, but they're bad scientists. Semmelweis is my favorite example of this. We've told this story a hundred times. Mid-1800s, there were a a ton of women dying after childbirth. Not during childbirth, but after childbirth. And year after year, 
this was happening over and over and it was getting worse and worse. And finally, Semmelweis, who was a doctor, said, hey, just tonight, crazy idea. Maybe when we perform an autopsy on a dead body in the morning, we should wash our hands after before we go give birth and, or go deliver a baby in the afternoon. So literally, the doctors would perform an autopsy, walk down the hall, deliver a baby. And Semmelweis was the first doctor that said, hey, maybe we should wash our hands. He was called a kook and a Jew, and he was fired. He went insane, and he died a few years later, literally in an insane asylum. It wasn't for like another 10 years before doctors were like, oh, maybe he was right. This was 150 years ago. It was the first time doctors uh, washed their hands. So these other scientists who ignored him are bad scientists, right? They ignored a suggestion because it was against consensus. The thing with science is it's about proving things false, right? Good scientists prove things false, right? Good scientists don't prove things true. They prove things false. So if you are trying to prove something true, you are a bad scientist. That's just, you're, you're not, you're not moving. You're not, operating in the right posture. You want to prove things false, not true. All these doctors and scientists around Semmelweis were uh, blinded by consensus, which is don't wash your hands. They wouldn't even listen to someone else who said maybe we should. Amazing, amazing story. Semmelweis, S-E-M-M-E-L. It's a cool story if you want to read more. S-E-M-M-E-L-W-E-I-S, Semmelweis. Uh, Okay, so you got bad science, bad scientists, And then you have an ignorant, lazy media. So last year, a scientist uh, published a study that said eating chocolate helps you lose weight. He said, if you eat a chocolate bar every day, you'll lose weight 10% faster. Published a study, a newspaper in Germany picked it up, and then it exploded all around the world. 20 countries translated into six different languages every news show like morning news show talked about it uh all the magazines shape magazine wrote an article why you must eat chocolate daily and all this stuff now here's the thing with this study a real scientist did it and a real scientist did a real study let me quote here um my colleagues and i this is the guy who did it my colleagues and i recruited actual human subjects in germany we ran an actual clinical trial and the statistically significant benefits of chocolate that we reported are based on the actual data. Here's the key. It was, in fact, a fairly typical study for the field of diet research, which is to say it was terrible science. The results are meaningless. And the health claims that the media blasted out to millions of people around the world are utterly unfounded. So this, this guy, the scientist, did a study And maybe in the next segment, I can explain how he did it, but did a study knowing the results would be meaningless as an experiment to see how many people in the media would repeat the findings without any critical analysis whatsoever. And to see how far it would go. He had no idea how quickly this would spread and how far it would spread 20 countries, six different languages. And it was a total joke. He even sent the, uh, the the study to uh, a bunch of peer reviewed journals and half of them printed it. And the media ran with it. Why? Because they don't know and they don't care. They're lazy. The media is lazy and they need to churn out content and make money. And a sensational headline like eat chocolate and lose weight 
is, is something that's going to, uh, that media reporters are going to report on because it's easy and they're not going to start. They're not going to look at the results and be like, Oh, you're, um, you're, a P equation is only uh, 0.01. It's not 0.005 or whatever. Like, no way. They're not going to look at that stuff. They're just going to look, oh, st- more chocolate makes you skinny. And <laughs> they run with that. Or, I don't know, radiation from Fukushima is going to kill you. News at 11. Lazy, ignorant media. And I don't really, I mean, yeah, I do blame these people, but they're, they're, their goal is, remember, what's the number one priority of TV news? Fill time. Okay? What's the number one priority of of magazines, newspapers, just churn it out. Just write something, fill the pages. We got ads to sell, just fill the pages. So this guy, the scientist, did did this chocolate study entirely as a social experiment to see how gullible the media can be. So we have bad science, like poorly designed studies, bad science, bad scientists, not bad people, but bad scientists, and a lazy media. We have all those three things coming together and it creates a lot of fear and a lot of panic and a lot of waste of time and money. So what do we do with this? I want to quote from Alex Epstein. Uh, his book is called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. This is required reading for everyone who listens to the show. The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. In the book, he says, trust experts, not as authority figures to be obeyed, but as advisors to one's own independent thought process and decision-making. An advisor is someone who knows more than you about the specifics, but knows only part of what you need and can be wrong. And we have this problem in America where if someone says, scientists say, or or, uh, uh, this study was in a peer-reviewed journal, it turns our brain off or we turn our own brain off, right? We're like, oh, well, scientists say. Or the classic global warming one is 97% of scientists agree, which is total, total lie, absolute total lie. So like, I, we don't have time to go into the whole thing, but there's a bunch of scientists who are in that group of 97% and who are like, oh, I, whoa, 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 I don't agree. I, I'm in that 97% somehow, but I don't, I don't agree, right? And then some who definitely don't agree, of course, aren't included, uh, it's a, a total scam that whole 97% of scientists agree, but you can see the point is to turn your brain off because most people think that all science is perfect. All scientists are great. And whatever the media says is true. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of bad science. There's a lot of bad scientists and the media is lazy and ignorant. And none of those things should be an excuse for you to turn your brain off. one 888 Slater radio on Twitter. Mike Slater show the blaze radio network spread the word. This is. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders. Thanks for being here. Um, Does all that bad science stuff make sense? Let me, uh, is it worth reading this? Yeah, I think it is. So, cause I, I, I really, cause I did this, I talked about this on my local show the other day and that afternoon I read a study about, and you know what? I think may still be on, uh, on drudge. It was something like good sleep is as important. 
important as winning the lottery or as good for you as winning the lottery or something like that. And I really hope everyone reads something like that and says, that doesn't even make any sense. What do you, what are you like? What does that even mean? And there's no way to really prove that. Like it's so goofy and just not to be distracted and fall for that stuff. So I think it's worth talking about this. So the, the fake chocolate study, eat, eat a chocolate bar every day and, and lose weight 10% faster. Uh, here's the guy who wrote it or did the study. He said, here's a dirty little secret. If you measure a large number of things about a small number of people, you are almost guaranteed to get a statistically significant result. Our study included 18 different measurements, weight, cholesterol, sodium, blood protein levels, sleep quality, well-being, etc., from only 15 people. This study design is a recipe for false positives. He says, think of it like buying lottery tickets. Right? The more tickets you buy, the more likely you are to win. He says, we, don't know, we didn't know exactly what would pan out. Right? The headline could have been that chocolate improves sleep or lowers blood pressure or whatever. But we knew our chances of getting at least one statistically significant result were pretty good. I, uh, and he goes on and he talks about how people can uh, manipulate data to come up with whatever they want. So I watched a guy, uh, he was a scientist doing a presentation for um, some college class about how easy it is to manipulate scientific data. And he started with the absurd proposition that there's a direct correlation between the length of a country's name and their GDP. Okay, so like the number of letters in the country's name correlates to the GDP of the country, right? That's, that's his theory, that's his thesis, his hypothesis. So he types in the names of the countries and then the GDP size, and he puts it on a scatter plot. And there were a couple outliers, right? Obviously, there's no correlation. So he went back to the data and he said, well, no one calls it Netherlands. So he changed it to the Netherlands. And no one calls it the United Kingdom. He changed it to UK, right? And he changed all these little things here and there. And it ended up, sure enough, there was a correlation between the size of the name and the GDP, which is absurd. Now, that's a goofy little example. But when you're talking climate change and there's billions of dollars and a ton of power at stake, you better darn well be sure that people are going to manipulate data for their own ends. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. Hope you have a great weekend. Uh, Last weekend, I watched Hacksaw Ridge. What's the deal? You got to go see it. Why did no one tell me? I'm mad at everyone. Why did no one tell me to go see it? The reason I didn't at first is because of Oscar bias, right? It got nominated for Best Picture for an Oscar. So I'm like, oh, pff, that's going to be terrible. <laughs> no way am I going to watch that. It was phenomenal. It was perfect. Have to go see it. Hacksaw Ridge. Go right now. It is, it is the most amazing story of conviction that I've ever heard in my life. And it was a miracle. There's, there's no doubt about it. There's no way to explain it. So if you have seen it, 
How do we raise our kids to be like Desmond Doss? How do we raise our kids to be men and women of conviction and, and unfathomable bravery like Mr. Desmond Doss? I'm serious. Go watch the movie tonight. What are you doing tonight? Watch it. Hacksaw Ridge. Got a bunch of feedback last week about uh, the segment we did about Borneo. I think we kicked off the show with it. Um, I want to share real, real quick. Um, and I got some more insight to, to share because people seem to have uh, gotten a lot out of it. So if you weren't here last week, William McDougall uh, was a psychologist in the early 1900s. And he wrote about Borneo. Borneo, and I'll be honest, if you told me to point to Borneo on a map, I'd have no idea. It's like somewhere in Africa. I have no clue. It's the third largest island in the world. And it's tucked right in there between the Philippines and Indonesia. In Asia, right? So he said, if you, if you go to Borneo, on the coast are tribes. And they're peaceful. Peaceful tribes. Never fight anyone except for self-defense. And then even then, they almost never win. But they're just very peaceful, nice people. And then you take a river and you go inland along the river. And the deeper you go, the more warlike the tribes become. So on the coast, very peaceful a mile inland, still peaceful. And then another mile, it's like, ooh, they look a little sketchier. And then you go another mile, and they're pretty crazy. Then you go another mile, it's like full on, whoa, like who are the like crazy warlike tribe? And you keep going, it gets worse and worse, right? Now, the question is, uh, what tribe would you like to be a member of? A coastal tribe or an inland tribe? Now, I think if you asked most people today, they would say the coastal tribe sounds nicer and safer because they're peaceful. Probably better people too. Yeah, nicer people. So here's what uh, McDougal said. He said, though it be supposed that the peaceful coast people would be found to be superior in moral qualities to their more warlike neighbors. The contrary is the case. In almost all respects, the advantage lies with the warlike tribes. Their houses are better built, larger, and cleaner. Their domestic morality is superior. They're better uh, wives and, and husbands and parents. They're physically stronger. They're braver and physically and morally more active and in general more trustworthy. But above all, their social organization is firmer and more efficient because their respect for and obedience to their chiefs and their loyalty to their community are much greater. Each man identifies himself with the whole community and accepts and loyally performs the social duties laid upon him. Isn't that interesting? So the inland tribes, they're more warlike, and people are like, oh, you don't want to be a part of that tribe. But not only are they more warlike, but they're, they're stronger, they're braver, they're cleaner, they're uh, more prosperous, they have more loyalty and respect, more trustworthy, right? That's, cra- like, that's obviously the tribe you want to be a part of. Now, I'm not going to go into it all again. You can check out the podcast last week, but that's the same divide we have in America today. This is Borneo 100 years ago and America today. We say all the time, the number one division in our country is city versus country. But it's also coastal versus inland. <laughs> right? I mean, where, where are the bluest areas? On the coasts. And where are the reddest areas? Inland. The coastal areas are more progressive. The inland area is more traditional. And the progressives on the, on the coast, they'll say that the inland folk are, folk are backwards. And the, the, the coastal tribes in Borneo will say that the inland folks are, oh, they're obsessed with war. 
They're more backwards, but that's not the full story. That division still exists today. Where's most of our military made up of? People on the coast or people from inland? Still today. There's something about that. If Borneo 100 years ago in America today had the exact same uh, situation going on there, there's something there. So to simplify it, I saw a meme online has four panels. The first panel is hard times create strong men. And it was a picture of the men of Iwo Jima raising the flag. Strong men create good times. And it was a picture of the World War II vats coming back, working hard. Good times create weak men. Coastal men. And it's a picture of uh, protesters whining about something or other. And then weak men create hard times. So hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. And it goes back around. The hard times create the strong men, et cetera. So the question is, where are we on that cycle? And we're somewhere between good times create weak men and weak men create hard times or someone there, somewhere there. And the more parents I talk to, especially raising sons, but it doesn't really matter. The biggest fear that young parents have that I know is that they think times are too good. That they make too much money, too many comforts. Things are too easy for them and think things are going to be too easy for their kids. So the question is, how do we raise... Let me, let, me, let me say it like this. Is it possible to live in a time of luxury and still have your kids have the morals that can only be formed in times of difficulty? Let me say it again. Is it possible to live in a time of luxury, which we live in right now, and still have your, your kids have the morals that are only formed in times of difficulty. Now, let me say one thing real quick, because you're probably thinking, Slater, I, I, I'm not living in luxury. I'm having difficult financial times. Easy for you to say, hotshot radio host, times of luxury. It's all relative. It's all relative. Um, I'm reading a book now about John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men in American history. He was 50 years old before he ever ate a banana. Bananas never made it to America until he was 50. So if you've ever eaten a banana, then you're ahead of John D. Rockefeller. And he said, oh, Slater, banana, please give me a break. Banana, is that what your point is? Okay, uh, how about penicillin? Do you, want, like, do you want any other medical advancements? How about John D. Rockefeller never rode in a car, let alone an airplane? Have you ever been on an airplane, right? So that's what I mean by times of luxury, right? Cell phones, Johnny Rockefeller didn't have cell phones, right? So, so there's things we have today that no one else has ever had in all of human history. So you may be on tough financial times, and I really do truly hate that for you. It's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about more big picture uh, times of luxury. Things are very easy in a lot of different ways for kids, but how do you, how do you have kids who still have the morals as if they were growing up in times of difficulty. Is it possible, first of all? And yes is my answer. It has to be. <laughs> I refuse to think that it's impossible. It has to be. But you have to want it and you have to work at it. I want to tell the story of um, of Cortez next. But it all starts with Sun Tzu. 
Sun Tzu, Art of War, 500 BC. And he said, if you take a, a bunch of soldiers who are strong soldiers, he says, when you bring them to battle, you want to give them a, a clear path to attack the enemy. And you want to make sure you have a clear path to retreat if necessary, a clear path to escape. But he said, if you take a bunch of soldiers who are wimps and from the city, I'm serious. He said that he said, if you round up men from the marketplace, that was exactly what he said. Where are the marketplaces in the cities? So he says, if you round up a bunch of, a bunch of pansies from the city and you take them to battle, you got to make sure you give them a clear sight to attack, a clear a path to attack the enemy. And you make sure there's no way and no place and no how that they can escape. He says, when you're dealing with weak men, you put them in a, in a hopeless position. You start from a place where there's no way to escape, nowhere to run. He calls it the death ground, a fatal position. He said, if you give weak men a way to escape, they will. They'll take it. But you put these men in a desperate situation, then it'll double or triple their spirit. With no place to escape, they'll get that edge and it'll cause them to fight like the devil. And it gives them the urgency to not pansy out. And I want to tell the story of Cortez next, which I think will make it even more clear. But maybe the secret is to put our kids in situations where they have to dig deep, where they have to be pushed, where they need to overcome fears. Maybe the, maybe this, the, 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 the secret is to put kids in. I don't know exactly what this looks like, but I, I'm talking about more spirit. Put them in, a, in, a, in what seems to be a desperate situation so that they can dig deeper than they otherwise would. Because pampering kids can't possibly build strong men and women. I want to tell the story of Hernando Cortez next. This will make it all the more clear. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Hernando Cortez. Spanish guy, 1500, uh, very long story short, he wanted to take over Mexico, but he was waiting for the right time. So he went to Cuba, which the Spaniards owned, and he sort of rose the ranks in Cuba. Uh, I don't think he was the number two guy, but pretty close to the top. The governor of Cuba, the number one guy, uh, sent him to Mexico to find out what was happening to all the other Spaniards he was sending there that have never come back, right? Like they kept sending people out to Mexico and it wasn't going well. So he's like, all right, Cortez, you go figure out what's up. So he went to Mexico with 500 men and he gets there and he says, all right, this is it. This is my chance to take over Mexico. We're going to take on the Aztecs. Now there's 500,000 Aztecs and 500 Spaniards. So they get to Mexico and he tells his plans to the men there. And they're all say, they all say, uh, 
Mm, I don't think so. <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, we got a bunch of gold already. It's pretty awful here in Mexico. A lot of diseases and stuff. And my wife and family, they're back in Cuba. So I think I'm just going to go back home. Right? So, so Cortez gives his men the choice. Uh, let's go fight or do we go back home? And pretty much all of them should go back home. So the next night, he has someone loyal to him drill. They have 10 ships. 10 ships. He tells someone loyal to him to drill holes in all the ships and sink them. So he does. And the next morning, everyone wakes up and the ships are all at the bottom of the ocean. And and Cortez pretends to be upset. He does the... Oh, oh, oh come on. Who... who man. Now what are we going to do? What? What? Jeez. <laughs> so, doesn't take long before the men figure out that he's the guy who sank them. So, they're going to cut his head off. And he's like, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. I did it. I admit it. I sunk the ships. But, you have two choices. You can hang me. But there are tribes all over here. That, that like me, but they hate you, and they're going to come here, and they're going to kill us all. They're going to kill all of you if you don't have me as your leader. So you can kill me, but you're going to die. Or or we can go and invade and kill the Aztecs and take all their gold. And he said, I promise you I will lead you to victory. And because there are so few of us, the glory and the riches will be all the greater. Now, it turns out there was one ship that was still seaworthy. And he said, listen, any coward who's not up to the challenge. You can get back on that ship and sail back home to Cuba and go be a coward the rest of your life or you can come with me. And all 500 men stayed with him and they invaded the Aztecs and they won. So what's the lesson? By the way, if you've ever seen Hunt for Red October, you've heard Sean Connery tell this story in Sean Connery fashion, which is about two sentences long, but... Here's the lesson. His men were too distracted by the easy way out. They were too distracted by the escape route. They had two paths. And one was very comfortable. The going back home path. So they didn't have any vision for the glory of the difficult path. They didn't have any desire to take the difficult path whatsoever. Because the easy path was right there. It was the ships. The ships were sitting right there. Like, why don't you get on and go back home? So because the, the easy path was so clear, no way would they even think about taking the dangerous one. It wasn't worth it. So what did Cortez do? He got rid of that escape route. He got rid of the distraction. Here they go, all right, Slater, that's fine, but I'm not uh, invading countries. So what do you... In everything we do, we... Because everyone's risk adverse almost everyone for everything we do we we set up an escape hatch we have a crutch we have a fallback but the thing is that fallback is preventing us from doing the right thing we take the easy route and it's preventing us from taking the right route it could be a comfortable job that's preventing you from doing what you really want to do Right, You know what you really want to do, but you're not going to do it because you're like, ah, oh, you know, I got my 401k or whatever, right? 
That's the easy path, preventing you from taking the right one. This is when you hear stories sometimes like um, people will say, you know, getting fired from this one job was the best thing that ever happened to me because it lit some fire under your butt and put, him in a, put that person in a more desperate situation and they dug deeper than ever before and they ended up doing something uh, because they, they, the comfortable path wasn't there anymore. They got fired. Maybe your crutch is a comfortable relationship, right? You can go and you can date someone else, which is scary and difficult and all the rest. Or you can stay with the person you're with now, which is like, meh, I don't know, but it's easy. Another lie can be you have endless time in front of you, right? That can be your crutch. That can be your escape hatch. You're like, well, I don't need to do this because I'll do it later. I got, I got plenty of time to take care of this. Right? I know I should do this thing, but eh, whatever. I'll do it later. No big deal. There's no urgency, right? 20 years go by and it's gone. There's no urgency to your action. Maybe, maybe the, the lie that you have endless time is your crutch. We like to think that the comforts we have in our life and the safety nets are a good thing, but it could be a curse. One of my favorite movie scenes is in Batman, the first Batman trilogy, the first of the trilogy, more recent, the Christian Bale movies. And he's in the prison underground. I think it's the first one. He's in the prison underground and he climbs up the wall and he gets on a ledge and he's got to jump to make it to this other ledge to get out. And he ties a rope around his arms or around his waist or whatever. And he climbs up and he takes the jump from one ledge to the next and he misses and he, do, and he falls down and he it catches him and he does it over and over and over again. And he keeps missing. He can't make it. And finally he takes the rope off and he climbs to the top. No rope, no safety net, no harness, nothing to catch him if he misses. And he runs and he jumps and he makes it. Why? Why does he make it that time? Because he has to. This can be applied to a million things. So I'm a new dad. So that's just sort of where my head's at now. So for me, the question is, how can I raise my son, Jack, to have the security of knowing there's a safety net, but the urgency of thinking there's no safety net? And I think if I had a choice, I, I think it's better for him to grow up thinking there's no safety net. What a tough balance to try and find. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. We've got one more uh, story to share about raising kids in prosperous times. Um, again, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And then weak men create hard times. And we're somewhere in those last two phases. We live in, in prosperous times. We live in good times. And again, you may be having difficult financial times. Um, that's not quite what I'm talking about. We have, um, we certainly have a luxury, uh, luxuries 
that uh, people in all of human history and, and 90% of people around the world, 99% of people around the world have, have never, have no access to. So how do we, in a time of luxury, because it says good times create weak men. So how do we, in good times, create strong men? That's the big question here. So I came across a story of uh, Dostoevsky. I've heard of him before, Russian writer in the mid-1800s. So Tsar Nicholas I was the leader of Russia, and Dostoevsky got caught up in a, he was young, and he got caught, he was, like, he was like 25 or something like that, and he got caught up in a political group that was against the Tsar. And one night, he and 23 other members of that group were arrested, and they were thrown in jail for eight months. Eight months, never saw the light of day, didn't even know why they were there. I mean, they kind of did, but they didn't know what the charges were or what the uh, penalty, the punishment would be. Eight months of that. So finally, they were all told that they were going to receive their sentence. No trial or anything, right? There's another example of how our, you know, we live in a time of luxury. We have a fair, speedy trial, right? Dostoevsky did not have that. That's something else that our kids need to appreciate, right? A fair, speedy, fair trial is a fairly new concept. Anyway, they were uh, being taken to the courthouse and they thought that their punishment would be a few months of manual labor and then the ordeal would be over. So they're getting closer to uh, somewhere. <laughs> they didn't really know where they were going, but they're getting closer to somewhere and it turns out they were looking around and they're like, oh, looks like we're going to the center of the city. And then Dostoevsky noticed that the streets were lined with soldiers and thousands of spectators. Uh-oh. Are these people here for us? He looked up and he saw some scaffolding set up in the town square, the city square, with, with three posts. And to the side was a line of coffins, 24 of them. And this is when the men start freaking out. They're thinking, what the heck? I can't believe they're going to execute us for this. How can that be? They were pulled out of the wagon, thrown up on the scaffold. And an officer said that they were all sentenced to death by firing squad for plotting to overthrow the czar. So Dostoevsky, in a resigned state, looks off in the distance and he saw the golden spire of a church and the sunlight was bouncing off of it. And he thought right there, he said, if I do not die, if I am not killed in this moment, he said, my life will suddenly seem endless, a whole eternity, each minute, a century. And he said, I will take account of everything that passes. I will not waste a second of life again. Someone put a hood on him. On all of them. A priest read them their last rites. They said goodbye to each other. The soldiers raised their rifles. And then a man on horseback came running towards them with an envelope. And at the last minute, the czar commuted their death sentence to four years of hard labor in Siberia. Now, most of the prisoners were destroyed by that event, by the whole spectacle of it. They were driven insane. They were paranoid. They never got control of their life ever again. It, it, it wrecked them. But for Dostoevsky, he took it as a rebirth, a second chance. 
This is what he said. He said, when I look back at the past and think of all the time I squandered in error and idleness, my heart bleeds. Life is a gift. Every minute could have been an eternity of happiness. If youth only knew how now my life will change. Now I will be reborn. And from that point forward, he went on to knock out a ton of books um, and, and be super successful. But, but here's what I find really interesting. Every day, he would bring himself back to that moment. Every day, he would bring himself back to that moment when his life was about to end. And he would look off uh, and, and see that the church the, with the golden arch, the steeple, golden arch, McDonald's, golden steeple uh, reflecting the sun, and he remembered his pledge to never waste another moment. And when he felt like he was getting too complacent, when he felt like he was getting too comfortable and basking in too much luxury, making too much money, he would go to a casino and gamble all of his money away. Not for fun. He wouldn't go to the casino for fun. He'd go to the casino specifically for the purpose of leaving broke. Now, you may say, well, Slater, why didn't he give it all away? I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know why he didn't give it away to charity. I don't know. But the point is, he took himself purposefully back to a state of desperation. He did that purposefully because that desperation is what gave him that spark of urgency and seriousness that he needed because that's what made him successful in the first place. So when he felt like he was getting too comfortable and making too much money, he was getting too soft, right? That's the good times create weak men. He saw himself in that phase of, of his life. And he's like, oh, I got to go back to the hard times. And he, and he gambled all of his money away. Maybe, he, I don't know why. I really don't know why, but maybe he gambled it away because if you give it away, then like that's noble, right? Like that's noble in and of itself. And maybe he would leave feeling good as opposed to feeling desperate. I, don't, I really don't know why he didn't give it away. But the point is he made himself broke. He purposefully put himself in a desperate situation. I want to quote you from the great Robert Green. He said, society is organized to make death invisible, to keep it several steps removed. And that distance, right? The death seems like forever away. That distance may seem necessary for our comfort, but it comes with a terrible price. The illusion of limitless time and a consequent lack of seriousness about daily life. Isn't that true? Right? We don't want to deal with death because it's difficult. So we just push it away. We make it seem like it's forever away. And that makes us more comfortable, right? Because it's uncomfortable to think about how quickly it is, how quick life is, and how soon we're going to die. We don't like thinking about that. So we push it far away. We pretend it's forever away. That makes us more comfortable. But then the consequence of that is it makes us lose focus and it makes us lose urgency and it makes us feel like we'll live forever so we can just be lazy. And that's one of my problems is laziness. It's one of my, um, like my natural states. And I bring this up today because I want my son, Jack, I want him to know that life is short and precious and a gift and important. And I want him to have a sense of urgency to everything he does. So I guess the goal is to try and live life like you've had a near-death experience, but can't, like, like Dostoevsky did, but can you simulate that without really having one? Can you live life like you had a near-death experience without really having one? I don't know. 
can you raise a son to live like he's had a near-death experience without him really having one? I, I, I don't know how to do that. Can you be as grateful for life and appreciative of every heartbeat that you have and every breath you take and every second you're alive unless you've had that taken away from you for a minute? I don't know. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. Thanks for being here. Thanks for putting up with me this hour as I'm talking about um, raising kids, really. At least that's how I'm looking. I mean, you can take these stories and interpret them a million different ways based on what's going on in your life. Uh, but I got a five-month-old in the next room, so that's sort of where my head's at. Um, and just kids in, in general. So I'm reading a book about John D. Rockefeller, Titan. It's Ron Chernow biography. And he grew up, Rockefeller did, second of six kids. His dad was a bigamist and a con man. He's a bigamist. He had a separate family and a total like swindler of the highest degree. Like he was almost never home because he had another family and he would go town to town and he would, he would sell magical elixirs that would cure every cancer and every ailment you have. Um, just the worst. And it was John D's mom who taught. That's what he, that's what they called him. John D. Uh, it was John D's mom who taught him to be thrifty and to save money. He came from a very low middle-class upbringing. Wasn't dirt poor. He was by today's standards dirt poor, but um, back then wasn't dirt poor, but certainly wasn't middle or upper class. So fast forward a few years, Standard Oil is taking off and John D has four kids and they're very rich now. They're not the richest in the world yet, uh, but, but pretty rich. Uh, he's got four young kids and they all grew up and had their head about him. They had their head on straight. How did he do this? First, he had his kids. They never came to his office or his refineries until they were adults. And at home, dad created a make-believe economy. So you get two cents for killing every fly, five cents for sharpening pencils, two cents a day for not eating candy, um, uh, a penny for every 10 weeds you pull, right? So there was John D. Rockefeller created purposefully a connection between work and money and money and work that a lot of people who grow up in money don't have. And he was afraid his kids wouldn't have. If there was just money everywhere, they wouldn't know that you have to work for the money. So he created a little makeshift mini economy inside the house. And he was thrifty. He, every package that came to the house, he would save the, the wrapping and the strings, partly because that was in his nature, but also because he wanted his kids to be able to have, or he wanted his kids to see that and be thrifty themselves. And his wife was the same way. It took the both of them to do this. So John D wanted his kids to have bicycles, but his wife said, no, only one, one for the four of them. And John D Rockefeller was like, well, honey, we can afford four bicycles. It's not a problem. And his wife said, John, they need to learn to share one bicycle for the four kids. So John D was able to raise his kids to live a life of material comfort that wasn't much better than his. His daughters wore hand-me-down dresses. 
<laughs> richest man in the world. Now, at this point, he wasn't the richest, but he's pretty far up there. His daughters didn't need to wear hand-me-down dresses, but they did. I love this story, too. Is, um, one of his daughters was in college, Vassar, and wanted to buy something nice for one of her professors. So her and three other girls uh, pooled their money together, and they had $75. And they went to the store, and they wanted to buy this thing, and it was $100 but they only had 75. So they go to the store clerk and they're like, oh, listen, like we only have 75. Can we have it for 75? And the clerk's like, no. And they say, all right, well, can we have it on credit? We're good for it, I promise. We'll go get the money. And he's like, no, I can't, I can't trust you girls for 25 bucks. And he goes, well, what does it take? What will it take for us to, to walk out of here with, for $75? And the guy's like, well, I need someone to back up, back you up. Right for credit, I'll give you. I'll give you this on credit, but I need someone. I need someone to back this up. And they're like, "Who?" And the guy's like, "I don't know. Do you a businessman? Give me some. Do you know any businessmen who can who can say that you're good for it?" And John D. Rockefeller's daughter goes, "Oh, my dad's a businessman." And the store clerk goes, well, "Who's your dad?" And she goes, "Uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller." And the store clerk's like, "What?" Yes, here, go, take it. You're good. So the daughter truly, genuinely had no like awareness of that. It was, she wasn't like, my dad's John D. Rockefeller, right? It was very much like, oh, 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 my dad's a businessman. He owns a business. Like she <laughs> couldn't put it together that it was standard oil, right? Like she just had this humility about her and, and it was all purposeful from uh, her dad. So a few lessons, it's, and it's, it's interesting. Um, you, we think that more money will solve all your problems and, and make life easier for your kids. Maybe, but in some ways, maybe not. Because there are wealthy parents who wish their kids didn't have the problems that can come from that life. And to bring it all back to the top of this hour, is it is it better to be a member of the Borneo tribe on the coast or further inland along the river? One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Slater Radio on Twitter. All right, I want to come back and talk about Trump. And the tax return story from this week with Rachel Maddow. When will people see that he does all of this on purpose? (laughs) All of it. He has this all planned out. He leaves nothing to chance. If you've been listening to this show for the last about two years, I don't think it has been two years since we've been really kind of taking this approach with Trump. It was a little bit into the campaign. So maybe we'll call it two years. He does all this on purpose. And the sooner you realize that he does, the more all of it makes sense. And if, and if you have been listening the last two years, I know that when you heard about this story, when you heard the whole Rachel Maddow tax return thing, I know that you said, oh, he definitely leaked those himself. <laughs> Denny Depp, there's no question he did. All right, we'll break all that down. Coming up next, Mike Slater. So the Blaze Radio Network, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, 
And we'll get to all this, but when she read it, it was as if she read it for the first time on the air, right? And and the reason was, the reason it sounded like that, she, right? It was like, you know, she teased it. She obviously read it beforehand, but she teased it and teased it and teased it and then dragged it out throughout the episode. And then when she read it, she was like, well, let's see what we got here. It's, uh, well, he, uh, he made $140 million. That's tough. Um, he... It's like here that he paid uh, 40, 40 million. He paid for, right? It was like, well, why, <laughs> why are you reading it like that? And why are you even sharing this when it makes him look so good? So the reason it came across like that is because the left, the Democrats, the media were so hysterical. About the tax returns, the tax returns, the tax. We got to get the tax returns. He won't release them. What's he hiding? We got to find him. We got to get him. And then Rachel Maddow finally got one, but was so blinded in her, uh, it's not rage, but just blinded by this, this desire to find the tax returns that she couldn't see clearly that they made him look good. <laughs> right and it really wasn't until she read it on the tv on on the air for the first like that was the first moment when she could look at him with clarity that's what that was that's why she read it like well he uh oh it looks like he made right i mean she obviously read it before but before it didn't it was all about getting them and this on the air was the first time when she could see like oh this i shouldn't be reading this on the tv now because <laughs> it makes him look good why did she act like that? Trump caused her to. Okay, He played a power move on her, on the media, on the Democrats the whole time. So uh, Robert Greene, 48 Laws of Power, you have to read it. One of the laws is, I think it's law 18, make other people come to you. Use bait if necessary. Make other people come to you. This is a classic example of that. A classic example of people saying, hey, Donald Trump, uh, we need your tax returns. Oh, these tax returns? I don't think so. Oh, no, we uh, we demand that we see them. Um, no. What? That's unprecedented. We need them, need them, need them. Eh, I'm not going to give them to you. Oh, oh, and they just freaked out, freaked out, freaked out, freaked out, freaked out. And it got Hillary all of her message and everything. And Trump just held them. He knew, especially the 2004 or five tax returns, he knew they made him look good. Why would he hand them over? It's amazing. You know, people kept asking because we don't think like Trump. Uh, people ask, why, what are you hiding? Why aren't you handing them over? And he's thinking, why would I hand them over? I know they're good. <laughs> I know they make me look good. Why would I hand them over at all? I'm going to wait until I want to hand them over. I'm not just going to give them to you. I'm going to make you go hysterical. I'm going to make you come to me desperately seeking for them. All right. So let me give you an example of this, his historical example. 
Uh, I got two. What should we start with? Let's do this one first, then we'll go to Napoleon next. Um, nineteen oh five, Russia and Japan. They were at war. We don't think about those two hating each other that much, but uh, Russia and Japan were at war in nineteen oh five. The Russians were much much stronger uh, than the Japanese, especially the navy. Not even close. But the Japanese sent some false information to the Russians saying that the Japanese fleet was vulnerable. Right? Sent some, some information somehow to the Russians that the Japanese fleet was vulnerable. And this was the time to strike. You got to do it right now. So the Russians, they fall for it. And they, they call an all-out attack. Right? The Russians took the bait. The thing is they couldn't sail through the Strait of Gibraltar because that was controlled by the British and the British and the Japanese were aligned. So the Russians had to sail all the way around the southern tip of Africa, adding 6,000 miles to their trip. Now, once they get there and they pass the Cape of Good Hope, the Japanese somehow send another false message to the Russians that they moved their navy to attack the Russians in the open sea. Right, so the Russians are just coming across the the southern tip of Africa, and they get word that the Japanese have the navy has left Japan and it's coming towards them. So they're going to fight at any moment now. So the Russians like boom, 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 all hands on deck, combat alert. The thing is, the Japanese weren't attacking; they were resting just back in Japan. So, but the Russians are on full alert the whole time, and when they finally do arrive in Japan, they're exhausted. Right? They just traveled forever for, for so long. They're, they're, they're like, they were on high alert the whole time. And the Japanese crushed the Russian Navy, no problem. The Japanese made the Russians come to them. When you do that, it's now on your terms. When you make someone come to you, it's on your terms. That's the key to this. So again, to bring it back around to Trump, the question is, why didn't Trump release these tax returns earlier? Because they're so good, right? They make him look good. Why not release them right away, right when they were, people asked for him? Hmm. The question is, why, why ever release them? Look what not releasing them did. It made the left hyperventilate throughout the entire campaign, assuming he had something to hide. And it made them overreach constantly, making this a huge deal when most Americans didn't think it was. And it got Hillary all flustered, right? Hillary's constantly talking about his tax returns. When Americans didn't care, they wanted to talk about the real issues, right? So Hillary could be like, where are your tax returns? What are you hiding? And Trump could be like, listen, people just want to talk about immigration. It got Hillary off her message. And that's what it, right? That's the, it's on, if you make someone come to you, it's on your terms. That's what Trump did. Trump said, Come to me on this. You, you come on, you come, you attack me on this, but now it's on my terms. So you attack me. I'm getting you off your game and I'm going to come back around and say, you know what, Hillary, the people really want to talk about immigration. And now I look good. You look foolish. That's the equivalent of having the Russians attack around the tip of Africa thinking now's the time to strike. And then here we are the left. They think they finally have him and it makes Trump look great. Trump knew it was going to make him look great the whole time. He knew that when he finally let them have it, they'd all have egg on their faces. How much more fun is it doing it this way? <laughs> Could have released him uh, a year and a half ago. That's no fun. 
that doesn't get people to play into his hands. This method sure did. So the overreach part, the overreach, right? The hysteria, like we got him, we got him, we got him. But never for one second did Rachel Maddow say, well, is this what we want? <laughs> is this, is this, does this make him look good? Should we even share these at all? And that's why Trump made her look so foolish. By the way, absolutely he released, he leaked them himself. There's no question about it. No question about it. He does this all the time. This is standard operating procedure. Decades ago, he was all like, he, was, he loved the tabloids. He would call the tabloids up and be like, hey, um, I'm going to give you a scoop on someone cheating on someone else, but you have to write up that I'm going to be at the front row of the Knicks game tomorrow with this supermodel. So you write about that. I'll tell you about this other story. He'd do stuff like that all the time. And then, of course, the infamous John Miller. He would pretend, Donald Trump would pretend to be his PR guy, John Miller, and talk to magazines himself talking about Donald Trump. Remember that whole thing? And then during the campaign, tapes of Trump pretending to be John Miller were somehow leaked. And and Megyn Kelly was, so are you with me, right? This is Donald Trump pretending to be John Miller talking about Donald Trump, like in the third person. Oh yeah, Donald Trump, you know, he's uh, he's a great guy. He's going out to this this thing next week or whatever. But it was Donald Trump saying, so tapes of this got released and it was like this big controversy, like what's up with Donald Trump? He's crazy talking about, you know, like pretending to be someone else, blah, blah, blah. And Megyn Kelly was talking to the People Magazine reporter in the tapes and Megan's like, so how are these tapes get released? And she's like, oh, I have no idea. And Megan Kelly goes, what do you mean? She goes, oh, well, I, I was the only one who had the tapes and my house burned down and the tapes got destroyed. And Megan Kelly goes, well, well, who else had copy of the tapes? And she goes, well, Donald Trump. And it hit Megan Kelly. Wait, you think Donald Trump released these tapes himself? And the, the People Magazine reporter looks at the camera and goes, hi, Donald. <laughs> like, of, like, of course he did. And people are like, whoa, what do you mean he released them himself? That's what he does. Right? Everyone makes everyone come to him. It's brilliant. He never leaves anything to chance. It's all done on purpose. I'll tell you a story of Napoleon Bonaparte doing the same thing next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the ultimate story of uh, make others come to you. So, Napoleon, 1814, Congress of Vienna. So you got the top guys in Europe coming together to figure out what to do after Napoleon's empire has collapsed. Now, Napoleon wasn't killed. He was exiled, but not very far away. He was exiled uh, to an island like right off the coast of Italy. Like not even like like really, really close to, to Italy weird and the fact that he was imprisoned so close to everyone made everyone really nervous all the leaders of all the other countries so the austrians were freaking out the most and they were plotting to kill him there but it was too risky and and i mean napoleon was like a legendary right so everyone was just really panicked about him 
except for one guy, Talleyrand. Talleyrand, if you're in France. Talleyrand, we'll call him Talleyrand. So Talleyrand was Napoleon's foreign minister. It was actually Talleyrand who sold Louisiana to Thomas Jefferson. Um, but that's a different story. So on this island, um, British ships surrounded it, right? So that there's no way he could escape. But he did. Napoleon escaped on a ship with 900 men. Now you're thinking, okay, he got exiled from, from France. World leaders hate him. Uh, he's got a second chance here. I've escaped. Where do you go? He returned not only back to Europe, but back to France. And he goes to Paris and the people loved him, worshipped him, bowed down at his feet. Our great leader has been resurrected. And the king fled the country and he took over the throne yet again. And Napoleon ruled France, France for another 100 days. But France was bankrupt. And there's nothing that anyone, even Napoleon, could do to keep, it, or keep her afloat. And it was the Battle of Waterloo. That was the last, the last stand. That was the end of Napoleon once and for all. And then they exiled him to an island off the coast of Africa this time. And he had no chance to escape from there. So what's the lesson here? A couple things to know. Why did he want to escape in the first place? He was pretty dejected after being dethroned the first time. But there were people coming to visit him, telling him that he was more beloved than ever in France. And then people, and he's like, really? <laughs> they still love me? They want, they want me back? Oh, but the other world leaders will never accept me. And then people started coming and saying, Napoleon, if you come back, the leaders of England and the leaders of Austria and the leaders of all the world powers are going to take you back. We're going to help. They're going to help you. They're going to support you. And Napoleon's like, whoa, unbelievable. All right, I'm going to go back. So it turns out Napoleon, he gets on this ship. The ship, remember the, the island is surrounded by, by British ships, right? To keep them in. The ship sails in the middle of the afternoon. It leaves the island in the middle of the afternoon. I, I, when I told you a second ago that the ship sailed away with 900 men, I'm pretty sure in your mind you thought it was pitch black, right? And they somehow sneakily snuck past the British ships. How did they not see him? Nope, middle of the afternoon. And the British ships did see him. They let him go. Why? It was all part of the plan. What plan? It turns out Talleyrand was pulling the strings the whole time. His goal was to have Napoleon return to the throne, not to bring back his glory days, but to crush him once and for all. So Talleyrand set up for people to go to this island and tell Napoleon that the people loved him and that all the countries would welcome him back. He set the trap. And then Talleyrand worked with the foreign ministers of England and Austria to make this happen and to let the, the, the British ships let him go, right? Because Talleyrand knew that Napoleon would take over the throne, he would go to war, and then that would end him once and for all. So he set Napoleon up with an irresistible trap. It was a trap of all of Napoleon's vices, right? Fame, eternal glory, redemption. And he knew that Napoleon would fall for all these things. And it was the perfect way to kill Napoleon once and for all. 
Talleyrand totally set the trap and he made Napoleon come to him. Now, he could have thrown his weight around, right? He could have yelled uh, at the top of his lungs, made his argument that Napoleon needs to be killed and we need to launch a full-scale attack on Napoleon on this island and all that. But he knew that no one would have listened to him. No one would have listened to him. So instead, he pulled off this amazing plot and he made Napoleon come to him. That's the key. It's the same with Trump. Trump could have said, all right, you want my tax returns? Here there. But why? Instead, he set the Democrats and the media an irresistible trap. He knew they would overreach. He knew they would lose their minds. He knew that they would spin these fabulous tales about Russia and Russian banks and never paying any taxes and all this nonsense. And of course, he knew that the people didn't care. He knew that. And he knew that the Democrats would look like fools when the truth really did come out. And the truth is that in 2005, he made a ton of money and paid a ton of taxes, (laughs) which is why the White House was so quick with their prepared response along the lines of, wow, look how successful he is and look how much he paid in taxes. More than MSNBC paid, more than Barack Obama paid, more than Bernie Sanders paid percentage-wide. All of them, 25% effective income tax. That's huge. He knew that. He's not going to leave that up to chance. He knew what it was. He knew it would make him look good. And that made it all the more reason to not hand them over. He knew not to play his hand. Trump knew to make his enemies come to him because when you force others to act, you are the one in control. If you're having trouble thinking about why Trump does things or what he's up to, first just assume that there's a reason behind it all. There's no way that Donald Trump, the type of person he is, the type of industry he's been in for the last how many decades of his life, what, 50 years, basically five decades, (laughs) the type of industry that he wings it and leaves things to chance, not a chance in the world. 1-888-933-93, Slater radio on Twitter. Just always just think when everyone else is losing their minds, right? And everyone's like, what is he doing? It's unbelievable. Just be super calm. Just like we talked about in the beginning of the show. And just think for a second, hmm, he's probably up to something. What what is he doing? What's the play here? What's he planning on? Think a couple of steps ahead because Trump's a couple steps ahead of the media. So if if you only react to the media's reactions, you're behind, right? If you only listen to the media and what they're feeding you and the hysteria that they experience and they're projecting on you, then you're a couple steps behind. Don't be a couple steps behind. You're smarter than them. Think for a second, what is Trump trying to do? And you'll be a couple steps ahead. And even if you don't know what Trump is trying to do, at least you're thinking that way, and that alone keep, makes you a couple steps ahead of the media. one 888 I want to come back, play a video of um, Glenn Beck, actually, from a couple of years ago, maybe like three or four years ago, that actually has uh, some application to uh, some stuff today. We'll bring it all around. Coming up next, Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater. So Donald Trump was in Michigan the other day, and he said he's going to stop the latest uh, increase in cafe fuel standards that Barack Obama imposed before he left the White House. Um, So he's not getting rid of them completely, which is what he should do, and I'll make that argument here, but he's uh, stopping the latest version of it. So let's chat about uh, fuel standards, cafe standards, they're called, which stand for, uh, sorry, what do they stand for? It stands for corporate average fuel economy. Corporate average fuel economy, which I will explain in a moment here. So the federal government sets a minimum average mileage for each manufacturer's fleet of vehicles, right? And that's why it's important to know what CAFE stands for um, because it's the it's the corporate average fuel economy, okay? So let's say the uh, the standard is 30 miles per gallon. Okay, that's, the, that's, that's what you gotta get. Now, if you're Ford, you can sell one car that gets 20 miles per gallon, but then you gotta sell another type of car because that's below the standard, right? 20 miles is below the standard of 30, but then you gotta sell another type of car that gets 40 miles per gallon. And then you average those two together to get the 30, right? So you can sell one that's below the standard, but you got to sell another one that's above the standard. So if you're a car manufacturer that makes mostly small cars, then your fleet is you know, above the standard. You can actually save cafe credits for making cars in the future that are below the standard. So above the standard means you're more fuel efficient. Below the standard means you're not as fuel efficient. You're a gas guzzler. So you can save those credits. So Toyota and Honda used to build only smaller cars. So they saved up credits for a long time that they then use on their Lexus and Acura brands, which are below the standards, but they can do that legally because they for so long have built cars above the standards. So there's a couple of reasons why fuel standards are um, a really bad way to conserve gasoline. Now I want to say I'm coming at this perspective, not from a constitutional uh, limited government libertarian, which is what I am, conservative libertarian, I'm coming at this from a progressive environmentalist. So obviously, cafe fuel standards are unconstitutional and stupid and got to go from a conservative perspective. But from a progressive environmentalist perspective, they're bad and have to go, right? They do the opposite of what people think they actually do. So here's the background. They started in 1975 as a way to conserve gasoline. Well, now we have plenty of gasoline, but it into this global warming thing, right? So now we have higher fuel standards to save the planet, but that's not what it started off as. It started off as ways for people to use less gasoline. Now, a couple of things, fuel standards only apply to new cars, which are about 7% of the cars on the road. So it's not like when you raise the standard, it has an instant effect. Now you may say, oh, well, Slater, you got to start somewhere. Eventually all cars will have the higher standards. Well, the higher fuel standards make cars more expensive. So in reality, the higher standards, then therefore the higher cost of the car causes people to hang on to their older car longer than they otherwise would. So let's say you have an older car that gets 10 miles to the gallon. And you're like, ah, I should get a new car. So you're looking to buy a new car 
and it's $5,000 more expensive than it otherwise would be because the fuel standard is so good, you know, so high. So you're like, oh, geez, I can't afford that. All right, well, I guess I'll drive this old gas guzzler for a couple more years. So it actually makes it worse because people hang on to their older cars longer. It also causes companies to find ways to average out their fleets, which doesn't do anything to improve specific cars, right? So Porsche, which is way below the standard, right? The fuel standard, a Porsche. They merge with Volkswagen, which is above the fuel standard. Now, does that improve the fuel efficiency of a Porsche? No. (laughs) They just merged with Volkswagen, so now the average of their fleet is the standard. Also, this causes companies to make cars that no one wants. This is why GM makes the Chevy Cruze. No one wants the Chevy Cruze. The only reason they make the Chevy Cruze is so that they can then sell trucks, (laughs) which is what people actually want, right? Now, Chevy Cruze, it's fine if you got a fleet of rental cars, but the only reason they make them truly is so that they can be above the standard, get some credits to make cars that are below the standards that people really want. Now, if I'm an environmentalist, I look at that and that's a huge waste. That's a huge waste of everything. That's a waste of uh, metal. It's a waste of raw materials. It's a waste of all the car parts that are manufactured all around the world that then have to be put on tankers or big giant ships, shipping containers, and shipped all around the world, shipped to America, and then uh, driven from the ports to Michigan and to put into a car that you then have to take the car, put it on the back of a truck and drive it to Florida and sell it to Alamo, right? Because no one actually is going to buy the Chevy Cruze, right? So that's a huge waste of resources just so that GM can reach their average uh, and sell cars that people actually want. So again, from an environmentalist perspective, This is a huge, giant waste. Also, there's actually two different standards. You have a standard for cars, and you have a standard for light trucks. And the idea was, when they first did this in 1975, is we don't want to... um, The light trucks have a lower standard. And it's because, oh, well, we don't want the light trucks to be more expensive because um, people use them for work. So they have a lower standard. Well... This inspired car companies to make more SUVs because the SUVs are under the light truck category. So now, because of the higher fuel standards, there's actually more SUVs on the road than there otherwise would be. So if you're an environmentalist who supported the CAFE standard, you're to thank for having SUVs. Also, if I haven't made the point yet, better gas mileage actually encourages people to drive more. So let's break it down here. Let's say uh, your old car can go 10 miles per gallon. And let's say gas is four bucks a gallon because that's what it is in California. Uh, So you go 10 miles per gallon. So it costs you $4 to go 10 miles. But if you get a new car that you can go 30 miles per gallon, which costs $4, well, now you just drive more, (laughs) right? You just drive 30 miles and you live further away because you can now, right? So, or you drive, you know, downtown when you otherwise wouldn't, but it's like, well, I, I get more gas mileage. So people drive more when they have more gas mileage. So in the end, consumption's about the same. Because people, are, they're, yeah, they're buying more fuel-efficient cars, but they're driving more. So they're still using just as much gasoline as they were before. 
We saw this happen in the 80s when the cafe standards went into full effect. The number of vehicle miles traveled shot up four times the rate of population growth. And it's because people could travel more for less money or for the same amount of money. So people just drove more, which again, consumption is the same. So I know I just threw a bunch out there, but it's a mess. And it, again, I love, I love government regulations where not only does it not achieve the desired goal, but it does the opposite, right? It would, it would be one thing if it, if it had all these other unintended consequences, but no, the, the consequence is the opposite of what environmentalists want. Now, what is it really all about? It's all about whatever government and bureaucracy is always all about. Hiring more lawyers and bureaucrats. That's what it is. The lawyers and the bureaucrats, listen, literally tens of thousands of lawyers and bureaucrats are in charge of cafe standards. It's unbelievable. So that's what it's all about. Trump needed to not only, so, so right now it's like 35 miles per gallon, the cafe standard, and Obama made it go to 54.5 by 2025. So Trump just got rid of that last part. So now it still stays at whatever it is, 30 miles per gallon. But even that's silly. I mean, we're already there. So it's like, all right, whatever. But um, really just get rid of it because it does the opposite of what environmentalists would even, would even want. Now, you know who really does like these though? I should say, not only do bureaucrats and lawyers, but car companies like Toyota, they like them. Because Toyota has invested a lot of money in more fuel-efficient cars and lighter trucks that, that get good fuel efficiency, but mostly cars. So they're above the standard, right? They're above the standard. But they love this regulation because it hurts a company like Fiat Chrysler who sells a ton of heavy trucks and SUVs. So Toyota's like, yeah, sure, bring on the regulations. They only hurt us a little bit, but they hurt our competition a lot more, which in the end is good for us. So there's a lot of cronyism going on as well. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Get rid of cafe standards is what I'm saying. All right, I want to come back. I I, I promise I'll play this Glenn Beck video from the other day because uh, this all kind of ties in with environmentalism and uh, science. We'll wrap up the show next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusader. So you know we talk all the time about confirmation bias, which is uh, basically how we all think we're right all the time. And um, we form an opinion instantly and we just polish and perfect it. We never allow in anything that may challenge that opinion because to be wrong feels bad um, and to be proven right feels good, right? So we only let in information we agree with. So researchers asked people in London, uh, and I'll ask you, do you think you are in the nicest half of people? So, so are you in the nicest 50% of the American people? You yourself, I'm going to ask you right now, answer that question. Are you in the nicest 50% of the American people? I think I am. I think I'm in the nicest half. It's not a super high standard. Now the question is what percentage of people answered? Yes. Now, if everyone looked at things in you know, properly, then it would be half, right? <laughs> half of people would say they are. And half of people would be like, oh no, I'm probably not. Maybe people are going to look at it a little rosy. Maybe like 60% of people will say they're yes in the, in the top 50, 98% of people 
<laughs> so almost everyone says they're in the nicest 50% of people. That's way off. So similarly, not only do 98% of people think they're nice, but 100% of people think they're right. I want to play this clip here that's been uh, on my desktop for a long time. This is Peter Thiel talking to Glenn Beck uh, years ago, and he's talking about politically correct culture and lack of diversity of opinion, and they get into climate change, and it's all in 90 seconds. And we'll, I'll un- we'll unpack it here, but uh, enjoy. 14, 15. And I always think the biggest political problem we have is the problem of political correctness, properly understood. And I understand it as sort of conformity um, and all the peer pressures that push us towards... Diversity is good as long as you agree with my diverse opinion. Yes, it's not. Diversity is not just um, the extras from the space cantina scene in Star Wars. It is um, you want uh, people, um, you know, it's not just people who look different and think alike. It's diversity of ideas that that really matters. And so... um, and so I think that uh, I think that that's uh, and so I do think that having a space where you can think for yourself uh, and where it doesn't always get second guessed is is very important. And so, you know, there's um, there are people, uh, you know, we, we have a, we have all these monolithic debates about science or pseudoscience. There's like the you know, there's the climate change uh, debate. And uh, and where is that science or pseudoscience? I, I think. Um, I think very often, when, uh, I think it's more pseudoscience, but uh, it's, it's often, um, it's, it's again, when you, whenever, whenever you can't have a debate, I often think that's, that's evidence that there's a problem. You know, when Correct. people use the word science, it's, a, it's often a tell, like in poker, that you're bluffing. And so it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's like we have social science, we have political science, we don't call it physical science or chemical science, we just call them physics and chemistry because we just know they're they're right, and you can debate the periodic table of elements. No one will be upset if you, ha- if you ask questions about that. We call it climate science. It's a tell, like in poker. It's telling you that, uh, that people are, um, are exaggerating and that they're bluffing a little bit. But, so um, good. But, uh, I, but I think... So it reminds me, it reminds me of a quote from uh, the great Michael Crichton in one of my all-time favorite speeches. He says, finally, I would remind you to notice where the claim of consensus is invoked. Consensus is invoked only in situations where the science is not solid enough. Nobody says the consensus of scientists agree that E equals MC squared. Nobody says the consensus is that the sun is 93 million miles away. It would never occur to anyone to speak that way. But the climate science, it's, oh, it's consensus, say the desperate scientists. I don't have time to play this clip, but uh, Scott Pruitt, the new EPA administrator, was asked on CNBC if he thinks that... um, uh, CO2 is the main control knob for climate. And he bravely, it's weird to even say that, said, I know, probably not. And it was like, oh, unbelievable. How could he dare say such a thing? It's definitely not. <laughs> First of all, water vapor is not even close. But even the effect of water ba- vapor on the temperature of the planet isn't known for sure or agreed upon. And it's certainly climate. CO2 is certainly not the primary control knob for climate. Just, just think of this. When people talk about consensus, consensus has a terrible track record. Here's my, my go-to example. Anyone with two eyeballs can see that the continents fit very nicely next to each other, right? If you take South America and Africa, they fit nicely, pop right into place. Alfred Venegar was the first person to propose this in 1912, but consensus said, oh, no way, you're an idiot, blah, blah. The greatest names in geology called him an idiot. He was a denier, right, of the current beliefs of geology at the time, 1912. It wasn't until 1961 when scientists proved that the seafloors were spreading. 
and that, yes, all the continents were at one point connected. It was 50 years. 50 years this guy was, oh, total idiot. What a jerk. And he's like, and now he's like, oh, like, obviously. <laughs> so anytime people talk about this climate, oh, scientists say, or consensus, it's all a bluff. Why? Because just like people think they're nicer than they really are, people are also way more certain about things than they should be. See you next Saturday. Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.